Okay, we're at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and I hope to go through verse 10 today. All right, before we get to that, let's kind of review a little bit. Uh, we didn't have service last week. Me and Angela and the family were out of town. So we need to review what we talked about two weeks ago. We looked at James three thirteen <clears throat> through 18. We talked about earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Uh, we talked about some Greek words. Anyone remember what the Greek word is for wisdom? Okay. Sophia, that's right. And we looked at the, the word philosophy, which is two Greek words put together. Philo and Sophia, and it means love of wisdom. It's a transliterated word. Now, the, a transliterated word, can anyone give me a, just a definition of what transliteration means? John? Take the, uh, the Greek letters and turn it into, you know, line them up and turn them into a new word. Yeah. Synagogue. Right. So we're not actually translating which would mean, if we were doing Sophia, it would be to translate it as wisdom. Or if we see the Greek word philosophy, it would be translated as love of wisdom. But instead, it's transliterated into the English as philosophy. That's the difference. So we've been learning a little bit about Greek lately. Uh, so we looked at godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, what the fruits of those things are. That earthly wisdom is bitter and self-seeking. It's sensual, it's demonic, it says. Uh, it's self-seeking. And then we looked at... Uh, godly wisdom, which is pure and peaceable and gentle. We talked about being uh, as all is within our power, being at peace with all men. But it's not peace at any price. Remember, we, we can't compromise the truth for the sake of peace. And if telling the truth, whether it's preaching in the open air or sharing with a friend, uh, causes a, a, a lack of peace in your life with that person, then I guess it's God's will. We do whatever we can to be at peace with them. But Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I will turn father against mother, son against daughter, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's what he said. So that's what he's talking about. That the truth will divide. It will divide us, unfortunately. All right, now we're looking at James chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 1, read through verse 10. And then we'll uh, take a look at it. Where do wars and fights come from among you? <clears throat> do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures say in vain, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> therefore submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
What we see here in the first is wars and fights. Where do they come from? Let's, let's look at some Greek for a second. Now, we already know the Greek from one of these words. But let's look at wars. Greek word for this. And John, you're going to recognize this word it's a, uh, as it's translated into Eng English here. Okay. So what we have here is a Greek word that's transliterated here as wars. It's polemos. Now, John, what word do you hear in English a lot that has to do with that? Polemic. Polemic. That's right. So polemos, you got pi, omicron, lambda, epsilon, mu, omicron, sigma. Polemos. That would be the transliteration of it. It's polemos. But translating it is wars. Now, oftentimes on message boards or in the open air, me and John engage people in discussion and dialogue about doctrine or whatever it may be. And there's two different ways to approach discussion. There's polemic discussion. And just by knowing what, how polemos is translated, we know what polemic is. It means to be antagonistic. In fact, the Greek word literally means this. A state of hostility or antagonism. So you can be polemic or you can be ironic. Now obviously there's a time for both, I think. There's a time to be polemic, time to be ironic. Uh, but most times in our, our conversations with people, we want to be as ironic as possible. It's the opposite of polemic. You're not being antagonistic. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt. You're not assuming things about them. You're simply just discussing things with them. That's, a, that's really the, the most loving way to do it. But oftentimes you might need to be polemic because of the situation. And uh, we see that happening in the, in the Bible sometimes when uh, Jesus speaks very harshly to people at times, uh, uses very hard words to people at times, and uh, not for the purpose of necessarily antagonizing someone, but to rebuke them. Rebuke them. So we have the Greek word polemos. And then we have the word for fights here. Is, uh, we've looked at this word before. Macho. Now, the society tells us that men are supposed to be macho, right? Got to be men, you know, macho. And they think men means you fight. It means you bully people around. Uh, you, you push them around. You may, uh, you know, hurt somebody. But obviously, macho is not right. That's fights. Where do they come from among you? This is talking in a negative sense. Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war on your members? Now, this is not saying, as some Calvinists may propose it's saying, that there's some kind of involuntary thing within you that's causing this fight and war within you. No, this is simply talking about temptation you have to fight and war, and you're giving into it. Because all sin comes from where? The heart. The battle for sin is won in the mind and in the heart. All matter of sin comes from your heart, and your, and your heart is really synonymous with your will. Whatever you decide to do is what you've decided in your heart to do. And every sin starts in either your brain or in your heart. Okay, you have a temptation in your brain, in your mind, and you either submit to it, or you take that thought captive into the obedience of Jesus Christ. And in your heart, you're tempted on something. Do I give in to this temptation? Do I submit to it? Or do I submit to God? Resist the devil and he will flee from me, as we'll see later on. That's the question. But this doesn't say that you're born with something inside of you that makes you sin or causes you to sin. So they'll say the war within your members. Yeah, the war in your members is this temptation war in your brain, in your mind, and in your heart that you're always fighting. Because you'll, you'll be tempted today you die. There's no doubt in my mind about that. 
But you can fight temptation, you can war with it to the point where you overcome it and have victory. Where in some areas, you might not be tempted in those areas any longer. We talked about this several times. I, I used to be a drunkard, I used to be a fornicator, I used to be a lot of things. They tempted me at the beginning of my Christian walk. They were strong temptations, some of them. Hell, drunkenness. I was a drunkard. But after a while, it, it no longer was a temptation to me. I, don't even, I would never even think about doing that again. It will never be, it probably never be a temptation to me ever again. Unless the devil comes in with some kind of demonic oppression or something like that all at once. But I can't imagine uh, that would even bother me. So this is not proposing here in the second half of verse 1 that there's something inside of us that makes us do this. Okay? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You ever heard that saying, always wanting, never getting? Always wanting, never getting. It's a good saying. It's a biblical saying. Because people who lust, people who covet, and they're focused on these things, they never get enough. They never get enough. People who lust and covet for, maybe lust and covet for a, uh, a, a nice car, and they see a nicer one drive by. It's more expensive and shinier. Oh, I've got to have that one. They get that one. A nicer and bigger and better one drives by. Oh, I've got to have that one. They're never satisfied because they're feeding their flesh. They're not, they're not living according to the Spirit. They're not content with what God has given them. They're hungry for more and more and more. When it comes to uh, sexual morality, you'll, you'll hear people like Ted Bundy talk about this. He started out with this, these little things on the side, and it went, 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 went to the point where he was a murderer. And, and, and one guy became a, he became a cannibal. But it didn't start out. He didn't start out as a cannibal. He didn't start out in this wickedness and depravity. He started as something small. But he hungered and thirsted for more and deeper and worse and the more depravity. And it got worse and worse. And that's what happens. That's why you never play with sin. Sin is deceitful and will harden your heart. Yes, John? Cannibalism is simply a person eating another person. Yeah. A guy went so far, he didn't start out as a cannibal. He started out as a normal person. We never even thought about being a cannibal, which is taking another person and eating them. Yeah, yuck. That's what we think. See, that's what he would have thought in the beginning. Yuck. But he played with sin. He toyed with it like it was some kind of little toy to play with. And then it was like a rattlesnake. It bit him. It poisoned him. And he went deeper and deeper until he, he killed himself spiritually. He killed himself. He became a reprobate to the point where he was a cannibal. So you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. So they're always wanting but never getting. You, you feed lust, you feed covetousness, it grows deeper and deeper and you harden your heart more. And he says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Now there's different reasons why James is saying here that they are not receiving something from God. One is they're not asking. Okay? Two, is that they're asking with wrong motives. That's what ask and miss means. Or with wickedness in your heart. Wrong motives. And there's no, there's no, uh, there's no wonder why they're not asking. I mean, I look at my past as I've become a Christian. When I have sin in my life, I don't feel comfortable even going to God in prayer at all. This is a prayer of repentance. I know He's not going to grant my request. Because I have sin in my heart. We'll get to that in a second. And then the second... Oh, I, I didn't spe spell it wrong there, right, did I? Is that why I was looking at it weird? Okay. Wrong. <laughs> uh, so wrong motives. 
So, they actually, so they're not asking, that's why they're not receiving. And if, when they do ask, which is, shows the depravity of their heart, they have wrong motives. And let's just, let's just go to some scriptures here. Let's go to Psalm 66 and verse 18. This is uh, David here. He says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's so kind of, I don't want to say funny, but when sinners in the open air, they'll say, well, I'll go home tonight and just ask God for forgiveness. Or they'll pray a prayer in the open air, but you have blasphemy come out of mouth in the next minute. Is God really going to pay attention to their prayers? Of course not. If you, if you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear, David says. And then Proverbs 28, 9. Something very similar. It says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. It's simply saying the same thing. You turn your ear away from the law, which is required. You, you, God requires you to obey the law, the moral law of God. He requires you to obey Him. Uh, if you're not obeying, even your prayer is an abomination. Let's look at um, Isaiah 59, in verse 2. So we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 2. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he, it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Micah chapter 3. In verse 4, Micah is right after... Um, Jonah, it's towards the back of the Old Testament. It's a small book. After Daniel, you go to Daniel, keep going. After Amos, it's a tough one to find. Micah 3 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds. If you regard iniquity in your heart, if you're living in sin, you're separated from God, and God will not hear your prayers. He makes it very clear all throughout the Bible. He will not hear your prayers. Unless it's a prayer of repentance, of course. God does hear the prayer of a repentant heart. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise, the Bible says. So, they're not asking there's no wonder why they're not asking. The people who are not asking probably have a less seared conscience than those who are asking with wrong motives. Because they know in their heart they probably shouldn't be asking. Because they, they, they would feel better, but they act with wrong motives. You know, and, and there's really, and it says right here in verse 3, you ask amiss, and it clarifies what it means, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So when Jesus says in the Bible... Uh, whatever you ask for, you shall receive. Is, is he meaning literally anything? Is he mean literally anything you ask for, you'll receive it? No. James clarifies that here. Here, He said you have to ask with the right motives. If you ask with the wrong motives, guess what? God's not going to hear your prayers. And gonna, he's not going to answer your prayers. Now, when we say God doesn't hear your prayers, do we literally mean that God is like deaf, can't hear him? 
No, God, God can hear everything. He's not paying attention to them. He's going to ignore you. And oftentimes in open air, we'll, we'll, we'll say, and this will surprise people because of their false ideas about this issue. They think God hears everything they say to him. Um, you may go home tonight and pray to God and, him a, and, and say, God, forgive me. And he may say no. Because they have the wrong motives. They just want forgiveness so, God, so they have to escape hell and they can go out and do their sin again the next night. That's the wrong motives. God might tell them no. And really, there's only four answers you can get to any prayer. One is yes. Oh, we all like that answer. Next one is no. The next one is probably the hardest. Wait. And then the fourth one is, I can't hear you. It's like having a broken cell phone connection. Your relationship with God has been broken. Your connection has been broken because you're living in sin. I can't hear you. So these are the four answers you can get to any prayer that you pray. Yes? Oh, we like that one. That's a great answer. No is even pretty good because you get a definitive answer from God. You know what his plan is. Well, no, I'm not going to do this. Okay, God, time to move on. Wait is really hard sometimes. God says, oh, you have to wait. It's almost like he's not even hearing you. He's not, maybe not, not even giving you a response because he's telling you to wait. That's a tough one to deal with. And this one is probably one that people uh, don't realize more than anything. Um, I can't hear you. They don't even realize it at times. Because they're regarding iniquity in their heart. God's probably not even speaking to their heart. And he's saying, I can't hear you. So those are the four answers you could possibly get from prayer. And, uh, of course, the first three are good answers. Nothing wrong with God telling you no. Is God more wise than you? Is God all-knowing? Sure is. So who is, who is the, uh, the best person to decide what is best for your life? God. That's right. So if God tells you yes, nor a wait, those are good answers. The only bad answer you can get is the last one. And if you get the last one, uh, it, which unfortunately most people aren't even aware of it, you need to reject your sin. You need to repent of your sin. You need to come to God in brokenness and repentance and humility. And then maybe he'll hear your prayers. Okay. Let's go on. James 4.4 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Adulterers and adulterers. What's an adulterer? Anyone know? It's someone who's married to someone and then cheats on them. Treats someone else as if they're their spouse. That's what an adulterer or an adulteress is. Now, as Christians, we're supposed to be the bride of Christ. And who's James writing to again? We looked at it at the beginning. Twelve tribes of Israel. Now, are these are just the regular twelve tribes, or the Christian twelve tribes of Israel. It's the Christian Jews. So he's writing to, writing to Jewish Christians. Okay, that are dispersed all throughout the region around him. They're supposed to be the bride of Christ. It's like we're supposed to be the bride of Christ. Now, if someone cheats on their spouse, their spouse is probably going to have two reactions to that. One is anger. Another one is jealousy. And we'll look at it here in a second. We're the bride of Christ. When we spiritually commit adultery on him and live a lifestyle of sin, he's angry. He's angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. And when you cheat on your spouse, 
your spiritual spouse, Jesus Christ, who is the groom, we are the bride, you make yourself a friend of the world, first of all, and you make yourself an enemy of God. In fact, the word enmity here in verse 4 literally means hostility towards God or hatred towards God. It's not that we get through our head. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve the world in your sin and serve God at the same time. You either love the one or hate the other or despise the one and love the other. You've got to decide in your mind. You can't be a double-minded man, as we saw earlier in James. You have to be a single-minded. You can't have sweet and bitter water coming out of the same source. You can't have salt and fresh water coming out of the same source. That's called hypocrisy. So friendship with the world is enmity with God. Let's turn to 1 John. Just a couple, three uh, books back. Chapter 2 and verse 15. So if you love the world, you're, you're at enmity with God, you're an enemy of God, you have hostility towards God, you have hatred towards God. And verse 15 of 1 John 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But who will live forever? He who does the will of God abides forever. The will of God. And what's the will of God? He obeys his commandments. He obeys his commandments. That's what the will of God is. Let's go back to James. So we're not to be spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. We're not to be dull-minded, not to be hypocrites. We're going to be single-minded, married to Christ. And right now, we're engaged to Him. We're engaged to Him. The wedding feast, the wedding of the Lamb, will not be until the end of the ages. Until then, you're engaged. And guess what? That engagement can be broken off. If you continue in your spiritual adultery, if you're living in spiritual adultery, God will break off his engagement with you, and you'll not be married to him in the end. You'll be like those, those virgins who are knocking outside the door and say, let us in. He'll say, I don't know you. Not I never knew you, I don't know you. I Meaning he might have known him at some point in time. I don't know you. That's what he said to the, the, the parable of the ten virgins. He said to, to five of them who didn't have enough oil in their lamps, enough perseverance in their heart to make it to the end. He said, I don't know you. are outside knocking on the door. Let us in. I don't know you. You're a spiritual adulteress. That's what you are. And that's what he'll say to every person who lives a life of sin, who claims to be a Christian. Verse 5. So we have the anger of God first in verse 4, because it's spiritual adultery. Verse 5. Or do you think the Scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, if you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God living inside of you. If you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit. God will chastise you. He will punish you. He will influence you to come back to Him. He will not force you to come back to Him. He will influence you to come back to Him, though. He never forces anyone to love Him. But he, He's jealous. He's a, God is a jealous God. He said in Exodus 25 that He was a jealous God. And He will have, either you will be His, or you won't be His. And I'll tell you this, I, I'm jealous for my wife. If someone makes a look at her wrong or tries to flirt with her, I'm going to be jealous about it because she is mine and I am hers. We are one. And that's the way it is with God. You're to be one with Him. If you are the bride of Christ, you are His and He is yours. You're to be no one else's, especially not the world's, not the devil's, and not sin's bride. 
So he gives these, some pretty hard words. Remember, he's talking to professing Christians here. Now he gets to the grace, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he gives more, does he give more grace to just anybody? What, what, does it clarify at the end of verse 6? Who does he give the grace to? Let me ask you this. Calvinism teaches that God gives grace first, then you become humble, then you repent, and then you trust. According to this verse, who's got it wrong here? You have to be humble first for your grace, or do you get the grace first before you get hum become humble? Which happens first? That's right. He gives grace to the humble. He doesn't give you grace and then you become humble. He gives grace to the humble. That's who he gives the grace to. But he resists the who? The proud. So he gives more grace to the humble. And this, this quote, in, 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 in fact, in verse 5, where it has quotations there, the scripture says in vain, this is, go, this is a little side note here, that's not a direct quote of any verse in the scripture that we know of. It's probably just simply him stating what the whole of scripture says as a whole and declaring it as a paraphrase, so to speak. But in verse 6, this is a direct quote of Proverbs 3.34. Now, if you go to your Proverbs 3.34 and your Old Testament, your Old Testament comes from the Hebrew. It won't match up, I promise you. And this is just more proof that they read, not from the Hebrew text in, in their time, but from the Greek text, the Septuagint of the Old Testament, written around 250 B.C. And guess what? I looked it up in the Greek. The Septuagint, Proverbs 3.34, and this Greek matches perfectly. Matches perfectly. Just more proof in my mind that we should really have a good translation. That the Old Testament comes from the Septuagint, the New Testament from the majority text. That would be the, the, the right thing to do. Because if you go, we've looked at it over and over again in our fellowship. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament. They don't match up to our, our Old Testament because they're coming from the Hebrew. But if they come from the Greek, that's up perfectly. That tells us, guess what? They were reading the Greek in their society. So I think that's kind of important. Unfortunately, we, there's only one Bible I know of that does this. It's not real popular. It's called the Apostles' Bible. And it comes Septuagint and the majority text. Majority text is the, the New Testament Greek text that, that's behind the King James and the New King James Version, and the Young's Literal Version. So anyway, God gives, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you have to be humble first, and God will give you grace. He'll give what you need. <clears throat> Verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what's the first thing you do if you're tempted? Oh, that's not what it says. What's the first thing you do? Therefore, yeah, you try to resist in your own power, you're probably going to fail almost every time. Submit to God, the Holy Spirit. I can do all things through what? Christ who strengthens me. You've got to submit to God first. He's where your strength comes from. We're dealing with spiritual forces like the devil. And then you resist the devil. And what will happen? The first time? No, not always. Let's go back to Matthew 4. Okay, Daniel. Matthew 4, we have the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And we can learn a lot from our Master and how he dealt with temptation. We can learn a lot from him. Matthew 4. 
And temptation, once again, temptation is not sin. Temptation is an influence, not a causation. Jesus was tempted in all points just as we are, yet was without sin. Temptation doesn't make you sin. Okay? So Jesus was tempted by Satan, and three times he responds the same way. Look in verse 4. He commands him, he's, Jesus is hungry, been fasting for 40 days. He said, well, turn these stones into bread. The devil said to Jesus, can, can Jesus turn stones into bread? He sure can. He turned nothing into something at the beginning. So he can turn stones into bread, the stones that he made himself. But listen to what he says in verse 4. It is, answer, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he's going to say, no, I'm going to obey God. I don't live by bread alone. God wants me to fast. I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to turn this stone to bread. That's not what God's will is for me. And that's a quote of Scripture. Let me just quote a Scripture for you. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man or a woman be pure? And then he goes on to say in verse 10, I've hidden your word in my heart. Or verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now when you're tempted, if you have the word of God hidden in your heart, your first inclination will not be to give in to it. Your first inclination will be to obey the word of God. That's why you need to hide the word in your heart. See what he did here? He quoted the word of God. He knew what the word of God says. I'm going to obey God. That's what he did the other two times as well. We're not going to look at both times, but he did the same thing the other two times. He quoted the word of God. And Christ had the word of God hidden inside him, so he was not going to sin against God. And if we have the word of God hidden inside of us, we will not sin. How can a young man be pure? I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Joshua 1.8. God said to Joshua, Do not depart from this book of law. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is in it. Yeah, you meditate upon it. If your mind is full of the word of God, word of God, word of God, word of God, guess what you're going to do? You're going to obey the word of God. And the problem with too many professing Christians, they don't, they don't have the Word of God in their heart. They treat it as just some magazine they read every once in a while if they want to. That's when they meditate upon. That's when they hide in their heart. And that's why they're living in sin. It's not taking all the precautions they need to take to get that out of their life. Let's go back to James. So James is talking about temptation here. Submit to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. We learn some practical things from the Lord Jesus himself, hiding the word of God in your heart. And when it comes, temptation comes, no, I'm not going to disobey God. I'm going to obey him. For most men, one of the struggles, that, one of the temptations they have the strongest, maybe they're driving down the road, they see a billboard. Oh, I want to lust at that. But then they remember Matthew 5, 20, he who lusts in his heart is an adulterer at heart. No adulterer should enter the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6 9 says. They remember that and say, No, I'm not going to do it. Take that thought captain to the beings of Jesus Christ and victory in Jesus. That's how it happens. Verse 8 Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, wait a minute now. According to Calvinism, God has to forcefully draw you near first for you to have the ability to respond. Now, that's John, that's John 6, 44. The only one comes to the Father, set me, draws him. John 12, 32. If I be lifted up, Jesus said, talk him off the cross, I will draw all men unto myself. John 16, 8. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, 
James is not asserting here that, that God isn't drawing first. He's simply saying, respond to that drawing by drawing near to God. And guess what? He'll draw nearer to you. It's like, you know, if we can pitch this for a second in an analogy. Let's just assume John's God, uh, God for a second. And I, I'm the person that God's trying to draw near. He's, drawing, he's, he's saying, come on. He's convicting me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Its influence is not making me do it. It's just influencing me with the word of God, the preaching of... And convicting me of my sin, my conscience, everything else. And I can respond in walking away. Or I can respond in drawing near. And as I draw near, guess what he's going to do? He's going to draw near. We can go to the product, parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son took his money from his father, basically said to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me the money I deserve that when you die, I should get it now. I'll take it now. I'm not waiting until you die. I'll take it now. He goes and spends it on his pleasures. Gets to the point where he's feeding pigs and taking care of pigs and eating pig slop. But what does he do? He gets out of the muck and the mire of his sin. And he goes home to the father. And as the father sitting back in his chair just waiting for him to get here with his arms crossed. No, the father sees him all. He's looking for him. He sees him and he goes running towards him. And that's the picture of the father with the sinner. They're in their sin. But guess what? They leave their muck and mire. The father's not going to go to them in their muck and mire and pull them out. They have to decide, I'm going to get rid I don't want this anymore. They come to their senses, you're right. Which is what he did. He came to his senses, why am I here? I can at least be a servant in my father's house if nothing else. He goes home to the father. And what does the father do? He comes running towards him. That's the picture we see here and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You draw near to God, guess what? He'll draw near. And this is not saying that we're the first one doing the drawing. God is always the first. He's always preeminent here. But we must draw near back. We must draw near back. And He will draw near to us. Second part of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, is this literally saying that we can cleanse our hearts from our past sins? Or that we can purify our own hearts from our past sins? It's on our record. How can we do that? They're simply saying, this is just talking about repentance here. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I think he'll help clarify this, what this is saying here. Isaiah 1. And verse 16. Isaiah says something similar here. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. And he clarifies. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek, to, uh, seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then this is how you will get clean. This is how you will be purified. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What cleanses us from our sin? The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. But guess what? You take a part in that, you must respond. You must respond in ceasing to do evil, learning to do good. You must respond in uh, cleansing your hands, sinners, 
purifying your hearts. If you won't do that, you won't be cleansed. You won't be purified by the blood of Jesus. You won't have your scarlet turned to white as snow. You won't have your red crimson turned to white as wool, which is basically symbolic of God not holding your sins against you any longer. God pardoned you of your past sins. doesn't mean he forgot about them. God doesn't have a bad memory. Simply saying that God's not holding against you any longer. On Christ's behalf, because of what Christ did on the cross, God won't hold you accountable for the sins you committed in the past any longer. Because Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to him to forgive you of your past sins. To forgive you of them. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What we see in verse 8 is synergism. Man and God acting together. Let me write that on the board here. Now, I went through a series on Calvinism, against Calvinism. Uh, we looked at the word monergism. Which simply means God does all the work when it comes to salvation. God does it all. God forcefully draws you. He, uh, causes, he makes you repent. He makes you have faith. He makes you persevere to the end. That's what monergism is. Synergism is this, which is what this verse is talking about. Synergism, I put a different, is God and man cooperating together. Doesn't mean man gets credit for his salvation, man gets glory for his salvation. It simply means man responds to God's offer in a proper way. God draws. Man draws near, God draws nearer. Man repents, puts his faith in Christ, God cleanses him of his past sins. That's synergism. That's what this verse is teaching. And I don't see how any Calvinist can get around this. Because it's teaching that they need to cleanse their hands. Who's doing the cleansing here? You. Not God. You. You're doing the cleansing. Who's doing the purifying of their hearts? You. You are the, you are the person here. Not God. James is not talking to God. James is talking to his, his readers. The Jews who are dispersed, who are Christians. Verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Who does lamenting and mourning and weeping? You do. And when you do that, your laughter be turned to mourning and joy. This is really similar to Matthew 5, 4, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is saying like these in the open air. You weep now, you'll be full of joy later. You laugh now, you'll be weeping later. You laugh at God, you laugh at your sin, you laugh with the world, you will weep later, you weep and gnash your teeth later in hell. But if you weep now over your sin, over your wickedness against God, and you, you, you mourn and lament. Your laugh to be turned to joy. And you mourn in the gloom. Right, your, your laughter will be turned to, to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's what needs to happen. And in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Who does the humbling? You do the humbling. Does God do the humbling for you? Yes, you have to humble yourself. Which, if God's commanding you to humble yourself, then guess what? 
Once God's a tyrant, you must have the ability to humble yourself. If I were to command someone, you know, to my son, son, fly off, fly off the balcony here. Well, I can't fly, Dad. Sorry. What's going to happen to him? He's going to get severely hurt. Is that wicked of me to do that? It's wicked of anyone to command something that's not possible for that person to do. That's wickedness. And my God, the God of the Bible, doesn't do that. But notice that you have to humble yourself first, and then he will lift you up. So the whole point James tried to make here, through all these hard words and these things, he's calling them adulterers and adulteresses, enemies of God. The point is the grace of God. That's the whole point. He's saying all these things to get to this point, the grace of God. Because God wants everyone to be saved, for no one to perish, for all to come to repentance, for all to come to a knowledge of the truth. Not the light and the death of the wicked, but that they all should turn and live. And that's the whole point of talking about the bad news, the hard things, the sin, the judgment, to get to the good news. So people can be saved. That's what God wants. He wants reconciliation with His with creation. He wants to know them and He wants them to know Him. Alright. We'll stop there. Anyone have any, uh, any questions? I'm going to submit. Uh, can you uh, explain that a little bit further? Submit to God? Yeah. Well, that's simply submitting to the Holy Spirit. <coughs> yeah, the Holy Spirit's conviction. Uh, you're submitting to Him for strength. You're submitting to Him the wisdom. Uh, you're simply in your heart and your mind, you're saying, I'm submitting to you, God. Temptation comes, the first thing you should do is submit to God and say, God, I'm yours, give me strength for this. And then you have more strength to overcome temptation. And you do that on your own? Yeah, you, well, you're, you're choosing to do it. But the, the overcoming the temptation is, is you're getting strength from God to, in, in, to help you do this. Yes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Christ gives you the strength. That's why you're submitting to him first. And then, then you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, what about humble? Can yeah. Uh, humble is, is simply understanding uh, your correct status or what's correct about yourself. Uh, it's understanding for the sinner, I'm wicked, I need a savior. I deserve hell, I deserve judgment, I need a savior. So it's kind of an intellectual thing. Yeah, I mean, most of it's going to go back to the heart and intellect. Of course, it'll show forth in your outer deeds. But when it comes to dealing with the gospel, you're always talking about the inner workings first. So you humble yourself in the sight of God, and He will lift you up. So you humble yourself, you come to God with brokenness in your heart, contriteness in your heart. He sees that. If you really are broken and contrite. Because there's such thing as false humility. And we talked about la the last time, we talked about hypocrites, and how uh, the, word for, the Greek word for hypocrite is the same word used to describe an actor. And they can cry on demand if they want to. Anyone can cry some crocodile tears. So if you have real humility in your heart, real, uh, humility, you, God will see it, and He will lift you up. I guess what I'm asking is, mm -hmm. how would you know that you're, you're being humble and you're not being a hypocrite in that? Uh, well, you know, by your works. Yeah. By your works, your fruit. Yeah. But can, people can put on an act as Oh, how do I know if someone else is really being humble? No, myself. Oh, well, you should know if you're putting an act on yourself or not. I mean, other people might not, might not know, but you and God always know what's really going on in your heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I... But we can... If I understand the scriptures, right, we can fool ourselves. Um, it, it would take a period of time to get to that point. That doesn't happen initially. 
That happens through the hardening of your heart, through the deceitfulness of sin. But you don't fool yourself from the beginning. You have a tender conscience, uh, but you can corrupt your conscience, defile your conscience, see your conscience. You can uh, refuse, if, you're, if you became a Christian at some point in time, you could refuse the, the, the speaking of the Spirit into your heart and mind, the still small voice of God. Uh, yeah, those things can happen, but it happens over a period of time. It doesn't happen all at once. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if, if someone is concerned that's happening to them, well, then they need to get before God and say, God, search my heart. Uh, reveal it to me. If I'm deceived, reveal it to me. If God wants to reveal it to you, he will. I want to do what you want me to do. Right. And, and so if, you, if someone thinks that's the case, they should just go to God and seek him right. and, uh, and ask him for wisdom. And he'll reveal, he'll reveal the truth to them. Because he, he wants, if, if they are deceived, he doesn't want them to be deceived any longer. He doesn't want them to have false humility. He wants them to have true humility. He will, he will uh, if I understand the scripture again, uh, he will, he will uh, rebuke you. Oh, yeah. If you've got false humility. Yeah. He'll, you're truly the same person. he'll chastise you. Uh, if, if, he, if you're a Christian and you have sin in your life, he'll chastise you. If you're not getting chastised at all by God, then you're a bastard, the Bible says. Yes, you're not. You're an illegitimate child, the Bible says. So, uh, either either God's uh, forsaken you, or you never were a Christian in the first place. Yeah. So, no problem. Any other questions? No.